Turn to John chapter 21. I'm going to pray before we climb into our message this morning. I'm going to pray for another church that's out near Campbell Commerce area, closer to Campbell, uh, Shady Grove Baptist Church. The pastor there is named James Rawson. Let's pray for this church. Let me tell you too, uh, for those of you that don't know that, don't know this, we pray for other churches not because there's some sort of crisis, uh, but we pray in front of crisis and pray for God's glory in and through those churches. So that's all we're doing right now. As far as I know, James is fine and Shady Grove is fine. So it's not a reactive prayer. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for an opportunity to gather this morning. Before we climb into our message, Lord, we want to lift up another church that's nearby, um, Shady Grove Baptist Church. We want to pray for James Rawson. We want to pray for his worship. Lord, I pray that you will guard James from um, going through the motions and just fulfilling a job description and just preparing sermons and just showing up to the hospital when people are sick. I pray that you will guard James from um, what is weirdly easy is just to glad hand folks and just smile. And just to act like everything's great, God is good, and everything's just amazing all the time, and the wind's to our back, and the seas are just so. I pray that in James, as I would pray in me and the other pastors and elders in this church and this community, that you would raise up men of sincerity who speak in Christ, who are on an authentic journey, though feeble and frail, fragile, a relentless journey of out loud faith. Lord, I pray that in that, that the people of God in this community will be encouraged that when the wind isn't to your back and the seas just aren't so, that you're still God and you're still good. I pray that for James in his ministry. I pray that for James in his marriage. And whatever, whatever, what other relationships he has, friendships or partnerships in ministry, staff member relationships, deacons, I pray that it's fueled by an authentic journey with a great God. And I pray that you're glorified through that. Lord, in whatever way possible, whether it's um, a tangible way that we can see or whether it's a, tangi- or a way that we will never be able to quantify this side, of, this side of glory, I pray that we serve as brothers and sisters with this local church, cheering for them, wanting your name to be famous and renowned among that people. Lord, in these next few minutes, I pray that you'll use this time that we have to look at the last chapter of this book, this sweet book that's been such a ministry to us. pray that you'll speak in spite of me. pray that you'll communicate clearly to your people and that we'll be encouraged this morning discovering and embracing what really matters. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> We're in John chapter 21 for uh, this week and next week, and I think we may have one more sermon in that that will be later this summer uh, from the last chapter here, chapter 21. <clears throat> this morning, we're going to be focusing primarily on the first 14 verses. Uh, next week, we'll be looking at... Um, most of the rest of the book, not all of it, but primarily verses 15 through 19. So families, as you're preparing for worship, you'll kind of know where we're going next week. This last chapter of the book of John is what's called an epilogue. It sort of ties up loose ends. If you've been paying attention, if you've been on this journey with us in the book of John, you know that Peter has sort of been left crossways with Jesus. The last time we really saw Peter in focus, and we've seen snapshots, but the last time we really saw him in detail and in focus, he's denying Christ three times. On the very day that he said, I will never forsake you. I will never leave you, Jesus, though all fall away. I will never. And here he is three times denying his Lord. And it's almost like somebody came to John and said, Hey, John, I read your book, and man, it's good. I loved it. But whatever happened to Peter? And John said, oh, you know, you're right. I need to go back and write chapter 21 
that says what happened to Peter. That's almost the tone of it. Now, we don't know that it unfolded that way. But it ties up loose ends with a central figure in the story, a man named Peter. But it also shows us some other things. This morning, I think it's going to bring into focus what really matters. That's, I actually didn't have a title of the sermon, so that is the title of the sermon. Somebody asked me earlier. That's the, the title, What Really Matters matters. You've got to have a title for it to really be a good sermon. So there you go. <clears throat> Chapter 21. What I would like to do is I want to read it, sharing a few things as we go along up to verse 14. And then I want us to come back and I, we're going to sort of unpack the goods from these 14 verses with the escort of questions. Four questions in particular that we're going to ask and answer. Okay, so that's the plan for the morning. Chapter 21. Here we go. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that would be James and John, and two others of his disciples were together. There's a total of seven there. We know the sons of Zebedee or James and John. We don't know who these other two are. And it's almost like John just forgot. Or they're, it's just not important. I don't know why they're not named. But they're not named. Verse 3. Simon Peter says to them, to the other, of the, the other six there. He says, I'm going fishing. Now something you need to know about Simon Peter that many of you may know already. But everyone should know as we continue. Is that Simon Peter, before he followed Christ, was a fisherman by trade. He was actually in business with James and John, the sons of Zebedee. They were partners. They, son, James and John had their own boat. Simon Peter had his boat. So at least three of these seven are fishermen or were fishermen before they followed Christ. And they're returning to their boats or to a boat to go on fishing. That's important. The others of the six there, at least the six of them said... We will go with you, Peter. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now, this word nothing is a Greek word. This Greek word, this is very important. You got to get this. This Greek word is uden. Okay, this Greek word is translated elsewhere in the New Testament as nothing. Here it's translated nothing, and elsewhere it's used all over our New Testament, and it means nothing. Nothing. Here's some words that are synonymous with this word. Goose egg. Nary. Not. Nil. Nix. Nada. Zilch. Zip. And here's my favorite. Diddly squat. <laughs> Direct translation. I mean, it could be. They caught diddly squat after a full night of fishing. Verse 4, just as day's breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Pay attention to the details there. They're fishing at night in the dark. And at sunrise, the light of the world shows up. Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him simply, it had to have been a curt response, no, no. <laughs> Now we know, as you'll hear later in the story, they're about 100 yards away. They're 100 yards from Jesus on the seashore. So they would have had to yell to some extent. But I just can't help but imagine that some of the emphasis behind the yell was not just to carry the distance, but emphasis behind the reality that they fished all night, but they had uden, goose egg, nary, not, nil, nix, nada, zilch, zip, and diddly squat. And here this guy on the seashore is saying, Hey, children, have you caught any? So then he says to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. <clears throat> I wish I could have been a fly on the wall or the fly on the boat to see the look on their faces as they hear this guy. At this point, he's a stranger to them. Who's saying, hey, you caught any fish? And then say, hey, why don't you cast on the other side of the boat? They fished all night long. And at least three of them are professional fishermen. I just can't help but imagine that they didn't roll their eyes or at least mumble under their breath thinking the idea ridiculous. But yet they cast their net. And now, 
at Christ's direction, they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, John, therefore said to Peter, It's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment. Now just note that whenever you go swimming, that typically you take something off. But here Peter puts something on. That's going to have relevance later. Peter puts on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. I like this picture because if John is the first to recognize, which he typically is the first to recognize something, Peter's the first to act on it. And here, sure enough, Peter flings himself into the sea and swims ashore. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Now, there's no way for us to know where where Jesus got these fish. There's no way to know where the charcoal fire came from. There's no way to know where the bread came from. It all just seems to appear with him at sunrise. One of the things I enjoy about this imagery, though, is I enjoy seeing the risen Lord, who is clearly the victor at this point, been victorious over death, risen, and now walks. A risen Lord is yet still serving. It's in keeping with a Lord that washes feet. It rides a donkey's colt. Here he sets a table before them. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you've caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. That number will be important later. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now, I knew that I loved breakfast for good reason. Actually, though, the original language just says come and dine. Our translators make it breakfast because it's at sunrise, but the original language clearly just says come and dine, and I think that's important because later you're going to see a connection to this sitting right over here on this table. Come and dine. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now, I have four questions that I want us to deal with this morning. And let me just tell you, too, that what you may not realize whenever you're being equipped for worship and wonder, each week as you're being equipped, you're also being equipped to know how to get the goods out of your Bible. So in some ways, there's the face value teaching that we're going to engage this morning, but there's also a collateral lesson in there where you learn how to study your Bible. You learn to ask questions of a text. Hopefully, you've read this passage or you've heard this passage and you've begun to ask questions. That's the first step to good Bible study. And the questions that I asked and the questions that are going to be our escort this morning is, first of all, why did the seven disciples go fishing? Secondly, why the ample catch? Why did they catch so many when Jesus was involved? Third, why the fish count of 153 fish? And then last, why have a meal prepared? So let's deal with the first question. Why did these seven disciples go fishing? Turn to Luke chapter 5. As you're turning there, I'll let you know that If we had no other satellites and all we had was John chapter 21, period. Let's say, for example, all we had was the book of John. If that was our Bible and we had no other satellites, there would be no way to know why these guys went fishing. But when you look at chapter 21 through the lens of some other satellites, like where we're about to go in Luke chapter 5, things begin to come into focus. And you can understand the context of what's going on in John chapter 21. The passage I'm about to read to you in Luke chapter 5 took place, it was an event that took place at the beginning of Christ's ministry, three years or so earlier. It's almost like a bookend to the ministry of Christ with the other bookend being John chapter 21. So let's look at the first bookend in Luke chapter 5. 
On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Now, that's the same body of water as the Sea of Galilee and the Sea of Tiberias. They all have that same name. They're just called different things depending on who's writing about it and even the time frame. It's the same body of water. These guys, are, he's standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, that's Peter, Simon Peter. He asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, uh, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. Udain, nil, goose egg, nary, not, nix, zilch, zip, diddly squat. We caught nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners on the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord." For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid, Simon. From now on, from this point forward, you will be catching men. And when they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Now, if you're paying attention, you recognize that there are lots of similarities in that passage. Likely took place three years earlier, but it takes place at the same lake. These guys fished all night long and caught diddly squat. And Peter again is at the sort of the center of the whole thing. And Peter's sinfulness, yet again in that first case, was also on display as sort of a central thought. But the point in this case, in Luke chapter 5, is that as of right now, you're going to fish for men. And they left their nets and they left their boats and followed him. In light of Luke chapter 5, this early bookend, it seems that John chapter 21 is a renewed call to fish for men. It's given to a bunch of men, or seven men at least, who had at least for the moment, it seems, forgotten their call. This early bookend to Christ's ministry helps interpret the context of this later fishing trip. And they were, it seems, going back to what they knew. Here's the key. Before Christ, without Christ. They were, it seems, going back to what they knew before Christ, without Christ. Here are some clues back in John chapter 21, if you want to turn back over there. Here are some clues that this fishing trip was a departure from their call. First of all, Christ has revealed himself to them twice. And at the first revelation, he breathed on them and he said, Receive the Holy Spirit. And then he says to them, As the Father sent me, so send I you. There's a clue just considering that at the first revelation that he shares with them, he sends them. As the Father sent me, so send I you. And here these guys are going back to going fishing. Something doesn't reconcile there. There's a first clue that this is not in keeping with their call to now fish for men. Another clue is that it wasn't sought by prayer or consideration of God's words to them, Christ's words to them. It doesn't seem that there was any conversation between the bunch of them. Hey, didn't Jesus say, as the Father sent me, so send I you? Why don't we pray about whether we should go fishing or not? They just up and go fishing. Another clue is that it seems like it's a maverick move with Peter as chief renegade. Notice the wording. 
I am going fishing. There's almost a message in there that I'm going fishing whether the rest of you want to go or not. I'm going to medicate. I'm going to busy myself. Or maybe I'm going to sulk. I'm going to do this. And I'll do it by my lonesome if necessary. It seems that image of this renegade or maverick thought of I'm going fishing doesn't reconcile with the prayer that Christ prayed on the eve of his cross. In John chapter 17 verse 20, he prays that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That doesn't look like oneness to me. To me, it's a clue that they've departed from their call. Another clue is that he called them children. It's hard for us to really get into the text here or the context of being called children, but it would be like being called dudes, fellows, boys, lads. It's in contrast with the way Jesus typically refers to these guys as brothers, at least recently, and little children, which is a term of endearment. There's a sense of separation and distance from Christ. And then there's the picture that they fished by night. Now, this was a common practice to fish by night, but just consider the imagery that they're fishing by night, operating in darkness apart from the light of the world. When does Jesus show up? He shows up at sunrise. That makes sense. They fish by night. And lastly, probably the best clue that we have is that they caught diddly squat. We'll consider that more when we consider the second question. Before we move on to the second question, though, I want you to see the grace and the gospel on display in this wayward fishing trip, and I believe it was a wayward fishing trip in light of Luke chapter 5. He asks them if they caught any fish. Now, knowing what Jesus knows, I think he already knows whether they caught fish or not. Don't you? He's asking them, hey, did you catch any fish? Already knowing that they hadn't. He could have just called them in. Hey, boys, it's Jesus over here on the seashore. I've got some breakfast for you. Y'all bring it on in. But instead, he asks them if they caught any fish. And it seems he wants them to see and feel and experience and recognize their empty nets. On their own program. It seems he wants to call their attention to the reality that so far they fished all night long. And what do they have? Diddly squat. Hey guys, have you caught any fish? It reminds me of God walking in the cool of the day looking for Adam and Eve, asking, Where are you? You think God didn't know where Adam and Eve were? He's not asking that question because he doesn't know where Adam and Eve are. He asks the question because he wants Adam and Eve to know where they are. And he says to Adam and Eve, where are you? He wants them to see and know that they've been operating in their own power and their own plans. And what has it yielded? Diddly squat. Zilch. Zippo. I think there's a fall connection here with Peter dressing before he goes to Christ. What did Adam and Eve do when God comes looking for them? They go looking for some fig leaves. And it must have been pitiful, as pitiful as it must have been as a guy trying to swim in his cloak. He goes dressing for a swim. Because I believe that shame covers up. I think there's clearly a fall connection here. God called to Adam where are you? And Jesus called to the seven children, do you have any fish? There's a grace and a mercy that God calls to the wayward and that he wants you to see your goose egg. I'm going to tell you right now, a ministry that doesn't point out your goose egg is missing it. A sermon or a series of sermons or a church or a shepherd are a small group shepherd that doesn't call into focus the empty nets is missing out on the goods. Jesus here wants these guys to see their empty nets and to experience the disappointment of a night of fishing in contrast to his better way and his 
ample blessings. We've said it time and time again. It's not good news unless you realize the bad news first. It's just news. When you realize the bad news and you see your own empty nets, then, man, it's good news. We can't and don't and won't enjoy his sweet provision, i.e. overflowing in full nets, except by an awareness of the empty nets of a bankrupt night without him. We have a good God that calls for Adam and Eve in the cool of the day and who calls for seven wayward fishermen from a seashore. Something for y'all to think about before we move on to the second question. This isn't the second question. It's just some questions I'm asking of myself. Have you been fishing all night, Ben? You've been doing what's wise in your own eyes? You've been applying your own method and your own plan to your marriage and your money and your parenting and your pursuits? Are your nets full? Are you experiencing those empty nets? That's the first step to enjoying the ample nets, the full and overflowing nets that are offered in Christ alone. It's a good question you've got to ask yourself. Apart from him, they'll be empty. Now, why the ample catch? The second question. In John chapter 21, verse 5 and 6, it says, Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, No. And they're thinking, We have a goose egg. We have nary, naught, nil, nix, not a zilch, zip, diddly squat. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in. Hear it again. Now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. They caught nothing on their own. It's a beautiful illustration of John chapter 15, verse 5, the teaching on the vine. He says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And he says, for apart from me, you can do nothing. I wonder if John was thinking of that passage as he's writing the account of John chapter 21. Apart from me, you can do nothing. In fishing terms, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that catches much fish. And apart from me, you will catch Udin. Consider the contrast. Rebellion without Christ on a dark night equals deadly squat. And then as daybreak, Christ shows up and blesses them with too much to carry. I'm going to tell you right now, that's the gospel right there, friends. That is an illustration and an image of the gospel. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. I want you to see just for a moment a full net. It's just an example of a full net from a guy that is appreciating the ample riches lavished on a bunch of losers. The over and abundant blessings of our God. Here's a description of a full net. Just listen to it. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with full nets in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Us? He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, before we ever did anything good or bad? Man, that net's getting full. That we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He's blessed us in the Beloved. Here, full nets. In Him, we have a big old fat full net. We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. You hear those nets stretching? According to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ. Man, that's just a description of a net. The stretching at the seams. That's all that is. That's a dude that's marveling at the full net that we have in Christ. And these are nets that, frankly, we can't haul in. But you know what? We strain at them and we tug at them weekly. That's what I'm doing every week as I stand up here. Or as Scott or Brad or Steve preaches, that's what we do. We strain at the net to haul it in to enjoy the riches of this lavish load. That's what you do as shepherds and families and homes. That's what you do in small group. You strain at ample nets. 
And that's the kind of gospel that we're walking in. And that's your charge. Strain at the nets of his ample provision. Now, why the fish count? Fish count's a challenge. And I'm going to share some testimony here in a minute. I'm going to read the verse first. Verse 11 Going back to John chapter 21. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Now, there are different thoughts on why there are 153 fish. I was talking with my kids about this this morning, and Daniel said, well, there, there were 153 fish because Jesus told 153 fish to get in the net. I said, you're exactly right. Thank you very much, Daniel. <laughs> I don't know that there's anything truer said in the McGraw house this morning. There have been lots of guys that have speculated on why 153. A guy named Jerome, one of our early church fathers, 300 A.D. or so, thought that it was in keeping with the number of recognized fish species. Now, it turns out there were 157, so that goes south. But his thought was that it's in keeping with the number of fish species because the work of the cross is going to gather tribes from every tongue and every nation. I like it, but it doesn't work. Some people have thought that it has something to do with the 12 tribes of Israel. But the problem is it's not divisible by 12. So then you have to do some gymnastics to figure out how to do that. I'll just tell you right now, 153 fish is a weird detail. And it's unlike John to provide a detail like that that has absolutely no meaning. So I believe that there's some sort of clear meaning there at some point. But unfortunately, the clear meaning has been lost to us. But it doesn't mean that we can't consider the fact that they're numbered. First of all, my thoughts is that he's a fisherman. John, by trade, was a fisherman. In my experience, fishermen catch or count their catch. I've done my share of fishing, and I'll tell you right now, I count my catch, and I may even stretch it a little bit. <laughs> I, I can tell you how big they were, and that I might stretch a tad too. But that's part of being a fisherman, especially a great catch. You're going to know exactly, man, because you can't wait to tell your friends. We caught 153 fish just like that this morning. A proper fisherman numbers his catch. A couple weeks ago, we were fishing with some friends, um, and, or we were visiting with some friends and swimming and boating and stuff like that, and some of the guys were fishing. And I could tell you right now, if I were to ask those guys, how many fish did you catch that day two or three weeks ago, or two, two weeks ago, they could tell you how many they caught. Because the proper fisherman seems to number his catch. John just sounds like a fisherman to me. So the fact that he went fishing with Peter in the first place, the fact that he went fishing with Peter and James and the others, and that he provides a fish count seems connected through my eyes right now. Now, let me qualify that. I consider often God's timing for a message or a truth is just so surgical and precise. It's not uncommon for me to hear from one family how God ministered to that family in their need. At the same time, He ministered to me and my family in our need, and our needs were different. And how he just so surgically and appropriately put medication on each of those wounds or gave direction in each of those situations. He's so surgical. And I'm just going to share with you a surgical procedure that's took, taken place on me in the last couple of weeks in regard to 153 fish. Ironically, I'm sort of difficult to understand thing. A little background for you. I have a bunch of notes here, and I'm not sure how much I'm going to... Um, share. I think I'm just going to share from my heart on this. It's not like some deep, you know, I know how you are when you hear, you can share from his heart. It's going to be really meaningful. It's more meaningful exposing the word. <laughs> you know, the guy that shares from his heart that doesn't prepare a sermon and just goes freestyle, that's not from his heart. That's freestyle. <laughs> so this is in secondary of in, in importance to what I've shared and exposed so far. But in some ways, it's testimony to what God has shown me. A little background for me, or to understand this, a little background for me right now. 
The last few weeks, really a couple months, I've been struggling personally with feelings of futility. And I'll tell you why. Because I don't know that there's anything harder or that I've experienced anything more difficult than ministry. And I'm not just talking about Crosspoint. I'm talking about walking with my family as well. In fact, I'm talking about walking with my family first. And, and being a husband and being a father. In the last few weeks, I've been feeling this sense of futility and struggling with it. And part of that comes from the ebb and flow that we're all on in our journeys of faith, including myself. It's not just a you thing. It's not just, I'm just really tired of riding the roller coaster of you. It's, I'm tired of riding the roller coaster of me. There's an ebb and flow to my walk. So I take my walk and then I exponentially consider your walks and the ebb and flow and the seasons that we all go through. In eight years, I cannot tell you the number of times where I've watched somebody or a family that is just absolutely white hot for the things of God. Only six months later or a year later or two years later to cool. In eight years, I've watched families leave the faith. I Listen, this is the craziest thing in the world. I actually baptized someone after walking with them for months. And after that morning in corporate worship where I baptized them, they would never return my phone call or email ever again. And I'm going to tell you what, there's a crazy futility that, that, you, that you feel in that. You're like, man, it's one step forward, two steps back. A family comes and a family goes. A family's white hot and a family cools. And I've been dealing with this sense of futility and this feeling that, man, what is this even about? It hasn't been a shipwreck faith. I've really examined it personally. I said, okay, I need to examine myself to have some sort of unconfessed sin. And certainly I have sin that likely I'm not even aware of, but I didn't have, as, as I examined, this glaring, you know, unconfessed sin that's crossway, you know, making it crossways between me and God. I'm searching myself. I don't see anything like that. I'm not questioning his call to preach. I'm not questioning his call to walk with his people in Greenville. I love it. It's the, it's the craziest treasure in the world. But this sense of futility is still there. And I'm like, man, I can't understand this. And then personally, what I'm doing on the sidelines, in some way how I'm coping with an overwhelming sense of futility, for me, where I go is to something quantifiable. I like to, when I lay my head on my pillow at night, know that I've accomplished something. <laughs> I was talking to Christy about it. I don't think it's just a man thing, but I think it's an especially a man thing. Christy said women feel that way too. She feels that way teaching sometimes, teaching the kids at home. Like, I've got to see a product. I need to see something quantifiable to know that I'm not wasting my time. I need to lay my head on my pillow at night knowing that I got something done. So for me, I think personally where I go is I want to go to something quantifiable. I think that's why I enjoy riding my bike. Because I know exactly how far I've ridden. I have a little computer that tells me and a little power meter on my rear wheel that tells me even my own power that I've produced. My max speed, my average speed, my distance. I could even figure out my calories if I wanted to. And I love that. <laughs> my humanity just loves that data. And I can lay my head on my pillow at night and go, I, all this stuff, I don't know what I got accomplished. But I can lay my head on my pillow at night and go, but I rode this many miles. <laughs> Isn't that silly? I think there's something in men, especially, but likely in all people to some degree, that wants to accomplish something and wants to quantify what we've accomplished. It's this desire to paint a brown fence white, to look at what we need to paint and what we have painted and say, I did that and I need to do that. Some clarity, if just for a moment. So here I am dealing with that the last few weeks, and I think in God's sweet sovereignty... I just ended up one night getting together with a couple friends. I was getting together with Brad Cardwell and Greg Fields, and we were just kind of hanging out. And I was just sharing with them some of that. You know, it's not like this heartfelt emotional thing because I really don't think it's like a sinful thing. It's just like, hey, this is where I am. And Greg said, you know what? I'm preparing to preach Ecclesiastes right now, and that just sounds familiar. 
And he starts sharing with me some things that he's been studying in Ecclesiastes. We believe the writer of Ecclesiastes is Solomon. He refers to himself as Koheleth, or the preacher. And he makes some observations. Kind of the message of the book of Ecclesiastes is life is striving after the wind. Greg said it's, for him, he's kind of translating it or understanding it. It's like shepherding smoke. Okay, you got it all gathered up? Poof, it's out the other side. For me, my, my image or my understanding of it would be like herding cats. Okay, you get them all together and pew, one's out the other side. And you go to get him and they're all gone. And that's sort of that feeling, it's striving after the wind. It's all over the book of Ecclesiastes. I've seen everything that's done under the sun, and behold, it's all vanity and striving after the wind. He's not saying that everything's a waste of time, that it's stupid and ridiculous and has no meaning. He's just saying it's like vapor. It's like smoke. It's like cats. He's describing this picture of this thing this futility, he's, he's illustrating the feelings and he's helped me understand futility. And in fact, he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 18, he says, For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. And I realize it's not sin. It's not a shipwrecked faith. It's not questioning call. It's experience in walking with me and walking with you. That man, we ebb and flow. We have seasons. It's sort of connected to Brad's sermon a couple weeks ago where he says, hey man, I got bad news for you, but we're not really improving. We need grace just as much as 90 as we needed it at 6. You don't somehow come into, as you're, when you're a 90-year-old, need less grace. You're just as much in need of grace as you were when you began the journey of faith. Now, that's not dealing with the issue of sanctification. It's just dealing with the reality that we're still so far from holiness. You think you got one area under control and it's like a herd of cats. You peel back one layer of the onion and you look under there and there's more dark heart to deal with. We were laughing at an elder meeting one night about the old guy that's saying, man, I don't really struggle with lust anymore or not so much. And he's like, but the reality is I'm old. Of course you don't. You're old. You don't, you're not having testosterone flowing through your blood all day long, revving you up. You're an old man. That's not sanctification. That's old age. <laughs> By the time you think you got one thing tidied up, you realize, oh, man, I'm peeling back a whole other layer of the onion. I need just as much grace. So there's feelings of futility there. It doesn't mean don't pursue holiness. By all means, do. He says, live in a manner worthy of the call. Man, by all means, you pursue those things, but you know full well, all we're doing is rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Do you realize that? When you're 90 years old and you've been walking in the faith for 50 years, your salvation will then be just as much by Christ's finished work as it was when you began the journey at 40. Just as much. Not one iota less. We are saved by an alien righteousness. So there's a futility or a feeling of futility that goes along with that. So I fear that we run to the quantifiable. Then we can say, I at least accomplished that. And for us, man, for me, my whole life in the Christian faith has been don't drink, don't smoke, don't cuss. Those are quantifiable. Those things will tell me I'm a good Christian. I'm not telling you to go drink, smoke, and cuss. But I'm just telling you, I think that's human nature. That's our way. i got to go run to something quantifiable. I think what these guys did on the night where Peter says, I'm going fishing, and the other six say, I will go with you, is they're going to something quantifiable. Let's go catch some fish. We don't know what in the world we're doing right now. We're shepherding smoke. We don't even know what's up. We left everything to follow this Jesus. Things were looking good. We marched into Jerusalem and Hosanna, blessed he comes in the name of the Lord. A week later, he's nailed to a cross and then he's resurrected and then he just shows up every now and again. <laughs> Let's just go fishing. Let's do something quantifiable. And it sounds to me, it seems to me like this picture where he's like, there's 153 fish. That sounds like a dude that likes to count heads. Made of the same stuff that I'm made of. 
And you see, as this story unfolds, here he is counting heads. And Jesus, in the next verse, says, come over here. Come have some breakfast. It's almost like he's saying, John, (laughs) quit counting. I'll go ahead and tell you, there's 153 fish there. Get over here and eat. You all see John and Peter. Can you believe this catch? Get over here and eat. This journey of faith is not about quantifiable measurements. It's about being with God. It's about enjoying your Jesus. Now, here's the great good news on the background of that. Is the more you enjoy Jesus, the more time you spend with him, the more you are changed. The more you are changed to look like him. But if you're going after change apart from Jesus, you won't find it. It's herding cats. But if you're going after Jesus, now that delivers. If you're going to spend time with him, now that delivers. Seeing this account of these guys fishing and seeing the head count of the fish, seeing it through my own context and my own situation, it's an encouragement to me to just come eat with me. Yes, it's shepherding the wind, but I deliver. It ministers. To me. Now that deals with my, that goes to our last question. Why have a meal prepared? This meal was a meal of restoration. The context for this meal is come here, men, come to the seashore, disobedient and rebellious ones. Come, you fishers of men who've been fishing for fish. Come, let's eat. Come to my table. In the book, Dealing with Futility, Ecclesiastes 2.24, in the backdrop of vanity and shepherding cats, it says there's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. That's what it boils down to. And then he goes on to say, this also I saw is from the hand of God. See the hands of Jesus preparing fish on the seashore. For apart from him who can eat or have enjoyment, apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you hear it? I think what it boils down to is a simple meal and enjoyment with a really good God. That's what journey of faith is. A simple meal with a great God. The message of the supper this morning is come and dine with your God. Be restored to your God. Sometimes when we're passing out the Lord's Supper, I see occasions where one or another of you or some of you may pass up on the supper. And I understand what that is. In a lot of cases, hopefully in all of those cases, it's self-examination where I'm like, I'm looking at myself and I can't eat rightly. My encouragement to you would be to fling yourself in the water, ask for forgiveness, and eat some food. If you pass up on it, don't pass it up for long. And in fact, knowing that the supper is about to be passed around, ask for forgiveness right now. It's available. Come and dine with your God. Draw near and partake of His provision. Bring tired hands that are sore from your own efforts. Bring tired bodies that have been pursuing and have been driven by the quantifiable. And come and eat with your God. Come hungry and be satisfied. Let me pray. Lord, as I examine myself and I see my own roller coaster of faith, I see my own passions that are so fragile and frail, like wind blown about. 
as I walk with your people, with the other elders in this body, and as I share their burdens together and share their joys and share their journey together, I confess to you, I feel the smoke and I see the cats. And I feel the futility and frustration in that. And at the same time, it points me to a simplicity, the beauty of a good meal with you. Lord, as we look at straining nets that are filled to overflowing with ample blessings for the undeserving, Lord, we fling ourselves out of a boat to get to you and enjoy a meal with you. Lord, we count right now that that access to that meal is through that finished work of Christ and only through that finished work of Christ. We count that work complete, adequate, sufficient. And we count it our portion. Lord, in these next few minutes as we enjoy this meal, we pray that you will find a people that for a moment will cease striving and be still and enjoy you as God. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Appreciating that we've caught nothing on our own. Goose egg. Diddly squat. Enjoying his ample provision. Come and dine with him. Let's eat. Let's take and drink. I was thinking about what it must have been like after Christ departed from the seashore. These guys fished all night. I mean, they hadn't seen Jesus, but twice. He just shows up in the upper room, startled, you know. And then they have a, a night of fishing where they catch nothing, absolutely nothing, fish all night long. Jesus shows up, put the nets on the right side, this ample catch. Peter swims ashore. They eat a meal with God the Son. And then Jesus is gone again. And I'm just wondering what, what they would have said. I bet they would have said stuff like, man, isn't that crazy, Peter? James and John, you guys are pros. <laughs> and we didn't catch diddly squat. And the minute Jesus shows up, our nets are full to overflowing. Jesus is awesome. And he invited us to his table again. Can you believe it? How awesome was that? Man, Jesus is greatness. That's what they must have been saying. Can you imagine? Can you think about I bet they even grasped Peter a little bit. Peter, it's pretty funny how we beat you in when you tried to swim in and we paddled in. <laughs> now, we don't know that they beat him in, but I bet they did. That'd be just like Peter getting passed up by the boat. But I bet the content of their conversation was the greatness of Jesus. That's supposed to be the content of your conversation after we leave this table. The greatness of Jesus. When you do that, as families and as small groups and in the workplace and between workplaces and in your neighborhood, that's called worship. That's what we do. <laughs> that's who we are. So y'all stand and I'll dismiss you so we can go talk about the greatness of Jesus wherever we may go. God, we are so thankful for this sweet chapter. What an awesome ending to the story. Lord, I'm so thankful that you're the kind of God that seeks out wayward fishermen. That finds an Adam and an Eve hiding, pitiful. That you call to attention our inadequacies, but then in the same breath point us to your complete sufficiency. Lord, that is good news. You're an awesome God and we love you. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Y'all have a great day.